Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, before we bring some specific uh, requests and uh, declarations before you in these next few minutes, I pray for another church in this area. I want to pray for Trent Brown and for Gateway Fellowship. Uh, Lord, I want to pray for his, first of all, for his worship in community, uh, starting with a relationship with his wife and family. Lord, I pray that you will guard him from the vacuum of ministry at the expense of his family, and that he doesn't see them as separate, but he sees, first of all, his ministry to his wife and children as primary, and uh, ministry to the church body as an overflow of that. Lord, we pray for this church. We pray for... Um, Pray for their worship. Just know how easy it, it can be to get caught up in doing church and just to find ourselves just going through the motions. And Lord, I pray for Gateway Fellowship as I pray for Cross Point that you would just guard us from ever treating a Sunday like it's routine. That we can truly see it as a feast day and a festival as the people of God gather and enjoy you and enjoy a word from you. Lord, I pray that you will foster that sort of heart for corporate worship and corporate gatherings in Gateway Fellowship, and I pray the same for this fellowship, that you'd guard us from ever just getting our church on and getting a check in the block, but that we can recognize every time we gather that we are, in, in a lot of ways, standing on holy ground, hearing from a burning bush, getting our charge, um, learning about who you are, enjoying your character, considering what you've done. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you'll work that in Gateway Fellowship as, as well as Crosspoint Fellowship, as well as the other churches in, in this community. Lord, I pray that whatever way possible, whether it's a tangible way that we might serve together or what would even be better, that we are about the dance with this fellow church and that we are interconnected, interinvolved, interpenetrating, that we're moving in concert as a complement to a fellow church. Lord, as I'm praying for one other church and praying for our church, I pray that for the churches in this community. I pray that you would work something that we know we can't work, that you would orchestrate something that we can't inspire, that we can't drive and we can't move, but an inner involvement, interconnectedness between the churches in Greenville and the surrounding area that puts the gospel on display. Lord, I ask your forgiveness for our competitive spirit and history of division. And Lord, we pray for oneness, for your glory, for your namesake. We confess that it's already been earned in the cross. We pray that we can walk in what's already been earned. Lord, in these next few minutes for this body, I pray for an attentiveness that might be uncharacteristic, that's probably uncharacteristic for the season and the time of year with football games and big activities and get-togethers and plans that are all around us. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that we can have an attentiveness that's divine, that the Spirit will speak to our hearts and show us what it means to be one and show us how to walk in it.
Lord, we love you. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in John chapter 17, so if you want to grab your Bible, that's where we're going to begin. I'm going to read the, the prayer. It's one prayer that was prayed on the eve of his cross, and thankfully it was prayed out loud. We don't know if all the disciples heard it, but we know at least John heard it. And John thankfully recorded it, and uh, we have the sweet privilege of swimming the ocean of John chapter 17 over the last few weeks and the next few weeks. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you, loved, or whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. These last few weeks and really the next few weeks, we're gonna, we've been and will continue to be sort of swimming this ocean of this prayer. It's immense. I feel like every Sunday when I read this or as Kate read it last week, or as I read it, that it's just insurmountable. When you really take it together, it's just an ocean is really a good way to think about it. 
The plan that we followed these last few weeks that we're going to continue in is sort of swimming this ocean by his request. There are five requests in the prayer. The first request is in uh, verse or in verse one. Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. We might expect that he would ask for that, given that we know he's jealous for his own glory. He's asking for glory. That's the first request, and it's actually a plea. He's pleading with the Father for his own glory. The second request is also a plea, and it will intersect with where we're going this morning in the fourth request. Holy Father, in verse 11, keep them in your name. A request for protection, and it's also a plea. The third request is in verse 17. Sanctify them in your truth, also a plea. And then the fourth request where we're really going to be camping out or continuing to study this week is in verse 21, a prayer that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us so the world may believe that you've sent me. And then the fifth request is in verse 24, a prayer that his people, those who the Father has given to the Son will be with him to enjoy his glory forever. This Sunday, we're focusing, continuing to focus on the fourth request. And as you're going to see, there's a connection with the second. I want to read verses 20 through 23 again because I want us to sort of hone in on those this morning. It's where we're going to be camped out, not exclusively, but primarily. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only. That would be the 11. Not praying for these 11 exclusively but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We're a product of those 11, and we could say Paul uh, added to that 11, a product of their ministry. 2,000 years later, we're sitting here on the receiving end of this prayer. I'm praying not just for the 11, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, And I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. I want to draw out just three things for you to consider that we're going to go back to and sort of grab this morning from this passage. First of all, verse 11, I'm going to just read a section of that. Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And the passages we're focusing on this morning deal with a specific request for oneness Not only for the 11, but for those who would believe in him through their word. That's us. That our oneness would look like the oneness between Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a purpose for the request. It's not just that we would all just get along like Rodney King would hope. But there's a purpose that we put God's nature and character on display. Second thing I want you to consider from this passage is that it's riddled with what are called henna clauses. If you've been paying, paying attention the last few years, you know that I grab henna clauses. Henna is a Greek word that's often translated in order that, so that, or that. 
The way I judge a good, worthy, I shouldn't use that word, a good translation for Bible study is does it render henna clauses or does it mute them? The NIV is an, is, is an amazing Bible for devotional study. But in a lot of cases, it mutes an in order that, a so that, and a that. The New American Standard and English Standard Version both do really good justice to this Greek word, henna. Now, before you tune out, <clears throat> I, w- I want to tell you why I consider these. Because part of the job of the preacher is to bring these things out. See, this New Testament was written in, in Greek. And we're reading it in English. And anytime you translate something from one language to another, it's going to be difficult for it to translate perfectly. And it's even more difficult because the Greek language is so complex. And the English language, it may take a paragraph in English to explain a Greek word. There are tenses in Greek that are not even present in English. So it's the job of the preacher to bring these things out so that we can really enjoy them and engage them because the English language may not directly translate them. And this passage is riddled with henna clauses. You might pay attention to the number of times that the word that or so that is used. In verse 21, that they all may be one. Later on in the verse, that they may be in us, so that. In verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know. This passage is about purpose and intention. I mean, it is rich with purpose. The reason we pay attention to purpose clauses is because we want to know what God's up to. We want to know why he's doing things. We don't want to just take them at face value. We want to do what kids are asking all the time. Why, mommy? Why, daddy? We want and need to know why. And that's why purpose clauses matter. And this passage is chock full of purpose clauses, as is verse 11. Oneness for a purpose. The third thing I want to bring out just from this passage is that he prays for perfect oneness. Not kind of a pale notion, but for perfect oneness. Full-on, otherworldly, and I used this term last week that I hope we fleshed out, godlike oneness among his people. Godlike oneness that's very different than anything the world has to offer. Now, before we really get into the passage, I'm going to take a moment just to kind of grab the things that we considered last week. But before we really do that, I want to just point out to you how good news it is that Jesus is praying for this in us because oneness doesn't come natural. If you've been human long enough, you know that oneness doesn't come natural. Really, he's praying over 11 guys and he's praying over us, but we can just look at the 11 and consider these are the same jokers that only days earlier, we believe, We're arguing about who would be first in his kingdom. Think about that. You think oneness comes natural? You think these times are any different from those times? You think humanity now is any different from humanity then? These guys are arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom. While they're walking with true greatness. These are the same guys that, along with Judas, barked at Mary for her extravagant worship. What are you doing spending all that money? That could have been given to the poor. These are the same guys that are made of the same stuff that we're made of. So we should be grateful that Jesus is praying for these things in them and us. 
Because it doesn't come natural. Oneness doesn't just happen. If you've been around humans or you've been one long enough, you know that we're not prone to it. We're capable of the same ugliness that we see in these guys between each other. At the end of John chapter 2, it's a passage that stuck with me when we were there. Where it says, many believed in Jesus, but it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in a man. Jesus knew then what we've got to know now that's in us. That this doesn't come natural. That's why it's appropriate for us to spend maybe weeks considering what oneness looks like. And for us to celebrate each week and enjoy that Jesus asked for this in his final hours before he went to the cross. It made the top five. Okay, now last week we considered, first of all, what even is oneness? We've got to know what he's asking for in order for us to engage it. Oneness is not a word that we use often, but it's one that we can look at biblically and try and understand what he's praying for. And the reference that we considered last week was not a, a Webster's Dictionary reference, but a biblical definition of oneness, which is a picture of, or it is, is a reality of the nature of Father, Son, and Spirit. Oneness is the nature of are part of the nature of God. And the oneness that he's praying for in us is going to be a reflection of his character and his, and his essence. Three things that we considered last week is that God's oneness is not a focus on his numerical singularness. Rather, it's about the dance of Father, Son, and Spirit. If it were about numerical singularness, then we are sinful just in having many churches in Greenville. We're sinful, in fact, um, having many denominations. But we can consider that it's not about numerical oneness. So we're not sinful in having a bunch of churches in Greenville. We're not sinful in even having a bunch of denominations. The letter to the Galatians, the letter to the Philippians, this one letter went to many churches. It's not sinful having more than one. In fact, I might say that it's even ideal where people can know and be known in smaller groups of people journeying together. That can be a good thing. What's sinful is when the dance doesn't happen and the interconnectedness and interpenetration, interinvolvement don't happen because people are competitive and ugly. What he's asking for and praying for here is not numerical oneness among the people of God, but that we join him and each other in the dance. He's praying that the church will focus on an inner involvement, interconnectedness, and interpenetration, that we would be a blurry union of many parts so that it looks like and is one moving organism. That's the first thing that he's praying for in oneness. Second thing that we consider that he's praying for in oneness is as the persons of the Trinity are equal, they serve in functionally different roles. And as you look at them as equals, Father, Son, and Spirit, as equals, each fully God, they serve in functionally different roles that look like a hierarchy. The Father sends the Son, and the Son obeys and goes. The Father gives the Son a message and words, and the Son says, I speak His words, and I speak it on His authority. And then the Son asks the Father, Father, send the Holy Spirit. And the Father sends the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He testifies to the Son. It appears to be a functional hierarchy, yet we know that they are equal. And as that's true of the Trinity, that's true of the oneness of the people of God, that we 
are equals, yet we serve in functionally different roles. Oneness, proper oneness, as a reflection of the Trinity, is made up of some leading well and others following well. All equals. It's made up of marriages where men are loving their wives as Christ loved the church, and that, as our Bible says, that the men are the head of the wife. And the wife is following and submitting to the husband's leadership, not because they're not equal, but because they're a reflection of the Trinity, equal serving in a functional hierarchy. It's like the church and her leadership. As equals, we serve in different roles. Third thing we considered regarding oneness is the three persons of the Trinity, all fully God, are somehow dependent on each other to be who they truly are. For there is no Son without the Father, and there is no Father without the Son. They are defined relative each other. And he's asking that we, as a reflection of his character of oneness, would be dependent on him and each other to become who we truly are. The McGraws are not truly who the McGraws are without y'all. And the same is true of you. Insert a family name in there. That family is not who they are called to be without the other family in the body. We are dependent. We are a needy bunch. We need each other to come into the fullness of who we are. That's how he's made us because we're a reflection of the Trinity. Now, this morning, <clears throat> we're going to consider two things. This is the plan. The first thing we're going to consider is how important is oneness. And the second thing we're going to consider is what's the effect of oneness. Look at verse 11. Something I want to show you in dealing with the first question is how important is oneness is I want to show you, first of all, that Christ asked for it. If we just took it at face value and said, okay, Christ asked for it, so that makes it important. But let's consider it contextually. When did he ask for it? He asked for it hours before he goes to the cross. We can also consider that he asked for it out loud in the disciples' presence so they would record it. We can also consider that it's one of five things that he asks for. And if you see it connected with the second request, you see that there are actually two things that are intertwined and connected that he pleads for. So just at face value, when we're asking the question, how important is oneness? We've got to consider it seriously important that God the Son asks this of God the Father on the, in the context of when he asks it and how he asks it. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. I want you to watch the progression of these next passages and watch the flow of what is being asked, how it's being asked, and I want you to notice the person that it are being that it ends on. I'm going to continue. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. That's a plea. Father, keep them. If you kind of notice words, I want you to notice the word keep because this is the first word in a bookend of important requests or important statements on a bookshelf. This first word is keep. Father, keep them. I'm pleading with you. Keep them in your name which you've given me that they may be one even as we are one. When I was with them, I kept them in your name. Next book which you've given me, I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that here's the other book in, that you keep them from the evil one. It's a difficult passage to really consider, but I want you to look at verses 11 through verses 15 as a single thought. As a thought that's connected by the word keep. Father, keep them in your name. Father, keep them from the evil one. I've kept them. I've guarded them. I've protected them while I've been with them. But I'm coming to you now, Father. Keep them in your name and keep them from the evil one. While I was with them, I kept them. I guarded them. Don't take them out of the world. But keep them from the evil one. I need to share something with you that... uh, snuck up on me this week as I was preparing to preach. I, as a practice, I talk with the other elders. I talk with the staff. I talk with Christy. I talk with whoever sits still about the sermon and about what's developing. And Scott and I were talking, and Scott pointed out, you know, it's interesting that Satan even gets any airtime in the high priestly prayer. I told you I wanted to pay attention. I wanted you to pay attention to where this plea and this request landed. It landed on the evil one. It's a surprise figure when considering the importance of oneness that Satan would even be brought up. I was thankful for that time that I spent with Scott because Scott brought up something that I think is important for us. It's significant that his name is somehow connected to the state of our oneness. One of the things I've enjoyed about Crosspoint in the last few years is that we've had the opportunity to put in perspective Satan's role in things. And you've heard me say, I bet, by this point, a number of times, that Satan doesn't scratch his behind. Christy told me not to say the other thing. Behind, except for permission from the living God. Now, is that true? Yes. Yes. We've seen Satan's role in things and recognized that he doesn't do anything except by permission. Yet he gets airtime in the high priestly prayer. See, there's a danger in having such a keen and high view of God's sovereignty that it won't give Satan time of day. That we don't even acknowledge that he has a part to play in oneness. And when this happens, we may be ignorant and inattentive to his ways and his wiles, and we may not even consider him a threat because we see him waiting to scratch his behind. I've been guilty, maybe, of contributing to that picture. So the pendulum has always been out here for me. Ooh, Satan, let's blame him. I don't know where God was when he did this thing, but Satan, he sure is bad. The pendulum swings the other direction. Oh, Satan doesn't scratch his behind except for permission from the living God. Ha! Maybe that pendulum should settle in the center here as we consider that Christ in his final hours, as he's pleading with God pleading for three things, requesting two other things, that Satan gets airtime. Christ prays for his disciples and for our protection in God's name and from Satan for the sake of oneness. If you see those bookends, you see that that's connected. Father, keep them in your name so that they may be one. You see oneness being at the middle of that? And Father, keep them from the evil one because the evil one is, and his role is connected to oneness. He likes to mess with important stuff.
and oneness is important. I want to show you. What we're going to do in these next few minutes is we're going to look at one, two, three, four, five passages that will help us consider the role of Satan regarding oneness. The first passage is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I've got page numbers for you if you carry the English Standard Version in the typical, um, if you, you have the study edition, this page number won't work. But if you have the Pew Bible or a typical English Standard Version, it's on page 1017. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter, who would have been a witness to this prayer. Now, we don't know for sure that he was. Peter might have been asleep. Knowing Pete, he may have been. John was paying attention. John recorded the prayer, but we know that Peter was there. Peter says this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay. Peter, a guy that would have been at this night, on this night, at least there, calls for sobriety and watchfulness because Satan is busy and hungry. He's prowling around like a roaring lion. He is an adversary to our faith, and he, we've got to consider, is on the offensive. He's not sitting back in the defensive. He is on the, the offensive like a prowling lion is looking for someone to devour. And I'll tell you this, he wants to damage oneness. He messes with the important stuff. The next passage is in John chapter 8, verse 44, page 895. This passage is embedded within a chapter that I've called the, the revival gone bad. About a third of the way through the chapter, it says many believed in Jesus. And they're, we might imagine that they're sort of at the point of decision. They're casting their lot with Christ. And then Jesus keeps preaching, unfortunately, because the rest of the chapter really kind of comes unraveled. Jesus keeps preaching. He says, if, if you're truly my disciple, you will abide in my word. And the word will, will set you free. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then those guys who had made that decision, those Jews who had believed in him, they bristled at the notion that they weren't free. And they said, we've never been enslaved to anybody, forgetting about Egypt, forgetting about Babylon. And then they start talking about uh, their plans for Jesus and start getting pretty aggressive. And Jesus refers to their father, the devil, and this is what he says in regards to Satan. He says, He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If we take the 1 Peter 5 verse 8 passage, we know that he's busy and that he's offensive. Not offensive. He's on the offensive. We take it with this one to know that what he does when he goes out to devour is he uses lies to devour. For he's the father of lies. 
We need to be aware of his busyness and his efforts to divide and disassemble with things that aren't true. That's what he uses to divide and separate and devour and damage oneness. Last week, I referred to a couple of his lies, and this week, I thought I would throw out a few more. And this, this little list is not exhaustive. It's just a little sampling of some that I wrestle with, some that I've heard, and some that I've had the chance to, to observe. One of those lies that Satan whispers in our ears is that we don't need to ask for help, that it's weak. Somehow, you're not strong and faithful if you have to ask for help. Satan will lie and make us think that we don't need others to know ourselves or be ourselves, that we can go move into a cabin on Walden Pond and find ourselves. Or maybe we can go to Salada and find ourselves. I'm referring to that sign that's on on the way out there that says, come to Salada and find yourself. Satan says, you don't need others to really know who you are. Satan tells you that you don't need anybody. He says things like, they should know you need help right now. This is one that I've observed so many times in the church, but I have to confess to you, Christy and I, most of our arguments early on in our marriage had to do with this issue where Christy's thinking, he should know how I feel. And I'm sitting here like every other dude going, dude, I'm a dude. I don't know how you feel. You have to articulate that. You have to share that. And the reality is that happens in church so often. Sometimes I don't know whether to call somebody or whether to wait. The other elders struggle with this too. The deacons do too. If you don't see somebody for two or three Sundays, you wonder, should I call? Or will they think that I'm meddling and busy? Or will they be relieved and thankful that I called? It's sort of a gamble you never know from each situation to the next. The reality is Satan will tell you that they ought to know how you feel right now. So just sit tight and play the martyr. He says things like, they'll just let you down eventually, so don't bother letting anyone get in for any reason. Don't get close to anybody because they're going to let you down eventually. Or maybe Satan lies and says you're a failure and you aren't worth knowing. Sometimes he pits the people against you, but sometimes he pits you against the people and says you're not worth knowing. And that's a lie of Satan as well. Sometimes Satan lies and says, you know, these people that are saying they want to hold you accountable, this is uncomfortable and painful, so it can't be biblical accountability. It must be meddling and mean. When our Bibles say otherwise, that discipline is uncomfortable at the time, but it reaps a sweet harvest. Satan is the father of lies, and you can bet that they'll not be obvious. They'll make sense at the time and they'll even seem reasonable, but they won't stand up to God's word. They'll look silly next to God's word, which is why we need the renewal of the mind each week and why we need to be stirring each other up by way of reminder. I read a a Facebook update that someone posted this week, and it may have been one of y'all, and I hadn't been able to find it because it was early on in the week. A quote by Noel Piper, John Piper's wife, Regarding small group, apparently Bethlehem Baptist really places an emphasis on being part of small group. And she said, some view our expectation to be in small group as legalistic. She said, we don't view it as legalism. We view it as desperation. That's good. That's how we view small group. 
Because we need to be stirred up by way of reminder. We need to have our minds renewed because Satan is busy and he's on the offensive and he prowls around with lies that don't look like lies. And he divides and he disassembles. That's just the way he operates. The next passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, on page 965 of your pew Bible or your ESV. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In their case, the God of this world, that's referring to Satan, he's blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This non-behind-scratching-without-permission-having being is referred to as the God of this world. So the pendulum has to come back to the center a little bit. We recognize that he is the God of this world, but he's only there by permission. But that he's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing God's glory of Christ in the gospel. We've got to recognize that one of Satan's methods of being the father of lies is to obscure glory. That's what he does. So if the oneness of the people of God is a glory demonstrator and a glory revealer, then we've got to know that Satan's going to do everything he can to obscure that. It may be folks that you walk with. It may be folks that you know. It may be family members. It may be folks that you work with. They will make little of the oneness of the people of God because that's what Satan does. He obscures glory. He works at it. The next one is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 on page 1024. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, why wouldn't he mess with oneness with the world? With the things that we're surrounded with. With things we can touch and bump into and use and eat. Why wouldn't Satan use those things? Every environmental factor you can think of, he could potentially use to mess with oneness. Every environmental obstacle that we can think of, we could consider that Satan is likely behind it if it gets in the way of oneness. Again, thankfully, we know that it's only by permission, but we can still be sober and watchful to the measure that he may take to mess with oneness. And it may be environmental factors. I was thinking about how this might work 
when I read passages like this, I just sort of bristle myself to thinking about the, uh, the whole world lying in the power of the evil one. And in, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where he's considered the God of this world, because I know who the true and living God is. But I've got to factor this satellite in and consider that he has given tremendous power in the world that we live in, and it's only by permission. I first came in contact with this concept in the book of Revelation, where there's one, one occasion after another that are called divine passives, where the hounds of hell are let loose to do God's bidding. And they are given instructions, you go thus far and no farther. You sting, but you do not kill. You destroy, but you do not kill. They're given boundaries. It's a great picture of what happened in Job. You take his family, but you don't hurt him. You take his, his health, but you don't kill him. One picture after another where God gives Satan um, a measure of influence and power, but it's only by permission. And I want us to keep that in view as we consider the influence that he can have in our world and over our environment to damage oneness. Here's one that I was thinking of. I have three or four examples. The first one that I was considering is fear. Satan can use fear to damage oneness. Right now, we have so many mothers of little ones in our body, our mothers who are expecting or who have a little toddler in the nursery or um, a kid or two that are just out of that age range. And what Satan may use to damage oneness may be fear of sickness. Why would we think that Satan wouldn't use environmental factors like RSV? We could be so scared of RSV that we could be frozen and hide behind closed doors in our homes and oneness could be damaged. I want to be real careful here because I don't want any parent to think that they need to carry their little infant out to be part of the people of God from day one because Ben said so. I'm not being faithful if I don't do so. But we've got to keep our eyes and our ears and our spiritual discernment wide open to consider, is this fear damaging oneness? Because the greater fear should be, I don't want anything to damage oneness. I have a fear of anything messing with me being known and knowing, with me being involved in the dance. And this fear of sickness could keep me behind closed doors so that I don't engage the people of God. Other things that I was thinking of would be audio distractions. This is a recent one for us. I shared in an email where I was when I stood to to deliver about three weeks ago. Typically, week by week, I've spent time in the throne room as we, te- as we spend some time in song, worship and song, before I preach. And about three or four weeks ago, I don't know how many weeks it was now, I stood up and I wasn't ready to deliver because I personally hadn't been in the throne room because it was personally too loud for me. Anybody that sits up here knows exactly what I'm talking about on occasional Sundays, and that was one of those Sundays. Why wouldn't I expect that Satan would want to cripple me before I stand and deliver? Why wouldn't I expect that he would take an environmental factor like volume to mess with oneness? Other things might be visible distractions that he may use. One of the things that I was considering too is email. This is something he uses with the elders often. We, call the, we have a name for it, the email gremlins. There are four of us that when we're together, we can spend time working through anything But oddly enough, every now and again, somebody will fire off an email or somebody will respond to an email where the rest of us will go, whoa, they're upset. 
and we'll make a decision. Let's shut down email because Satan's using it right now to divide us. And let's meet in person and talk through this matter. Satan could use audio issues. He could use visual issues. He could use email. He can use fear of sickness. This is one I've really wrestled with whether I should even share or not. I've talked at length with Christy about it because I want her to check me on it. I talked with Scott about it this morning. He may use our health. He may use our access to foods that are easy to eat, with foods that are tasty to eat, with foods that are cheap, so that we eat things that make us sick. So that we eat things to where we're sick so often that we miss engaging the people of God. I don't want to imply that if you're ever sick, you must be eating terrible things because some of you eat great and might be sick. But just consider for a moment that, hey, I want to eat better and I want to be physically active, not so I can fit in those genes, but so I can more consistently engage the people of God. That's coming out health at a whole different direction because I don't want anything to damage oneness. If I know that Satan is the God of this world and that he can use my environment to damage oneness, that if he wants to mess with important things and oneness is important, why wouldn't he use food? Think about it. Christy and I were talking this morning and she pointed out, she said, you know, She's reading a book right now from Paul Tripp, and Paul's talking about how we view Satan. We view Satan like if, if we were to make a movie where Satan is doing something, we're going to have Steven Spielberg and Stephen King, and it's going to be dark, and they're going to be weird creatures, you know. Satan, it's not like that. He uses things that in and of themselves are fine, like a piece of cheesecake. Nothing wrong with that. He uses email. He uses things that in and of themselves are fine, but he makes them bigger than they're supposed to be. He exploits things. He's the father of lies, and he exploits things that in and of themselves seem harmless. I was thinking, I've been just kind of in preparation for this, thinking about refined sugar. And this is anecdotal. I'm preparing you this. This is anecdotal. This is Ben's experience. Okay, I'm sharing almost this, converting or shifting gears to testimony. When I eat refined sugar, I'm sick all the time. And I feel like dirt, like trash. I have no energy. I just want more of it. It's like poison for me. It's like crack cocaine or something. I need more sugar. So for me, it's bad, bad news. Is there anything wrong with refined sugar in and of itself? No. But for me, it's bad news. For me, it damages oneness. Because I have no energy to be around my family. I have no energy to study. I have no focus. I feel bad. So why wouldn't Satan use an environmental factor like the easy availability of refined sugar to damage oneness for me? I did some reading on refined sugar and found that, man, refined sugar is just crazy in what it does to your antibodies and your ability to fight off sickness and disease. And we eat gobs of it. I mean, really. Apparently, years ago, I don't know, early part of the century, the average person ate about 20 pounds a year, and now we eat about 130 pounds a year, the average American. And if this thing really damages your ability to fight off disease, 
Why shouldn't we consider an environmental factor that we know that Satan might use that's not scary, but is ever ready and available to keep us from oneness? It's the Gnostics, an early heresy in the early church that separated the spiritual from the physical. And we are quite Gnostic if we don't consider that Satan can use the physical to mess with the spiritual. It's Gnostic and it's wicked because they're connected. If you don't think they're connected, then you need to read your Bible. They are connected. This isn't a sermon on healthy eating and physical activity. It's a sermon on being attentive to the wiles and the ways of Satan, how he messes with the important thing called oneness and how he can use anything and he will use anything because we know he's always on the offensive and we know that he's hungry. So if he's on the offensive and he's hungry, he's going to use things that are surrounding us every single day to mess with oneness. One of the things I've been wrestling with is why would he allow Satan to mess with something that's so important? Seriously, if you think about this, if Jesus prayed for this on the eve of his cross, why would God allow Satan to mess with oneness if it's so important? And the place I go is why would he let his people go into Egypt for 400 years? So that he may be known as the Lord. So that he may be known as the deliverer. And I told you I'm speaking anecdotally, testimony, what makes me sick. I now know the Lord as big D deliverer from my lifelong eating problems. Have I arrived? No, but I'm leaving Egypt. I know the Lord better through that thing that he's allowed in my life, that I've wrestled with my entire life. I know him better than I would otherwise. And I know him as the big D deliverer. I can identify with the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, who can eat or find enjoyment without him? I'm thankful for that he allowed that in my life because it's escorted me to know him better. Why would he allow Satan to mess with these things that can damage oneness? Because we come to know him better through it. The last passage I want you to look at is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's on page 969. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. Is it no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. <laughs> you know, if you really think about it, he wouldn't use Steven Spielberg or Stephen King. I mean, he's going to use the Food Network, our Home Improvement Network, our Disney. I'm not picking on Disney. This is not the anti-Disney campaign. I'm just saying he's going to use the things that are surprising, the things that you wouldn't expect. He parades and disguises himself as an angel of light. We've got to know that Satan's wiles and his ways are to make himself look righteous. The things that he whispers, the thing that he lies about, the things that damage oneness will always look like they're righteous, but they've got to be tested with the Scripture. And they've got to be tested in community. We've got to be stirred up by way of reminder. And we have to have our minds renewed with this book that we know is the absolute truth. To test Satan's ways and his lies. A diagnostic test 
is whatever is being whispered to you, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're believing, if it messes with oneness, then you can bet that it's Satan and a lie. If it messes with oneness, you can bet that it's Satan and a lie. Christ's prayer for protection, his plea for protection from the evil one for the sake of oneness should make us recognize that Satan is the greatest enemy to oneness because he messes with important things. He loves to mess up the dance. He loves to distort the beauty of the functional hierarchy that puts the gospel on display. He loves to whisper that you don't need them. You're independent. You're an island. So we should be sober and watchful and renewed and stirred. How important is oneness? It's important enough that he pled for our protection from Satan so that we could be one. Now, the second question is much shorter. Is what's the effect of oneness when it's displayed? Chapter 17, verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me that they may be one even as we are one. The effect of oneness when it's displayed is that the nature and character of God is on display. A bunch of sinful critters put the nature and character of God on display. I don't know why he wouldn't go with something more reliable and consistent to put his nature and character on display, but he didn't. He's ordained that his church, that the people of God, put the nature and character of God on display. And then in verse 21, he's praying that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that, that's a key hint of clause right there, so that, circle it, the world may believe that you've sent me. And then in verse 23, he's praying that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, Another circle, the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Two really key henna clauses. I told you this passage is just full of those. The two key ones that I want you to be attentive to in the circle is in verse 21, so that, and in verse 23, so that. In verse 21, be one. I'm praying that they'll be one so that the world may believe the Father sent the Son. In verse 23, I'm praying that they'll be one so that the world may know that God the Father sent the Son. Here's where that finds purchase for us. How a husband and wife treat each other helps the micro world of the home believe the father sent the son. You want to separate your marriage from what your children think of the gospel? You can't. How Tom treats Sally shows Clarence what the gospel looks like. Think about that. That's what he's ordained. He's taking the reliable and the unlikely and really the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. How a church gets along with each other helps the world know that God the Father sent God the Son. How a church gets along with each other helps the world know that the Father sent the Son. Man, people show up to a church and say, okay, what's your evangelism plan? What's your evangelism program? And the response biblically should be, well, we want to be one. We want to dance. 
We're trying to maintain the oneness that he's already achieved in the cross. We're vigilant and eager and sober and watchful to keep Satan at bay so that we can truly be one so the world may know that the Father sent the Son. What's your evangelism plan? Oneness. That's it? Yeah, oneness. That's what he prayed for on the eve of his cross. So here's where that finds purchase. An angry, harsh father shows his family that the heavenly father is a cosmic killjoy. See that? An angry, harsh father shows his family that God is capricious. That he's quiet and reserved and then other times he'll rip your head off. An angry, harsh father shows his family that the father's unpredictable. An absentee father shows his family that the father doesn't really have time for the son because the father's busy. He's got lots to do. A divisive church shows the world, our little version of the world here in Greenville and surrounding area, that God the Father and God the Son are fragile and easily separated and even hateful. Why do we want oneness? Not just for the, the absence of conflict, because we put the gospel on display. We want oneness because it shows Greenville and it shows our family and it shows our friends what God looks like. A hard-to-lead church shows the world that the son is like a cool rebel. is kind of like a James Dean. <laughs> I got this. A hard-to-lead church shows the world that the son is rebellious and that the father is sort of a weak pushover. These realities should place a serious burden on you, on us, on this church, on the people of God to maintain the oneness that he earned on Golgotha for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his name, for the sake of the gospel that's on display. You'd think he'd have ordained something more reliable than us so that the world may believe and know, but he didn't. He's taking the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The thing that's probably the biggest shocker to me and the effect of oneness when it's displayed is in verse 23. He says, so the world will know that God loves his people as he loves his son. First of all, it's a shocker that God even loves us as he loves his son. Think about it. Would you? Would you love the likes of us as you love true perfection and true dedication and true obedience and true glory? That the oneness of the people of God help the world believe and know the Father sent the Son is scandalous in and of itself. But that we can show the world that He loves us like He loves His own Son, that is a true shocker. You want people that you know and love and care about to know what God's love looks like? You do that by being one with His people and one with Him through His people. You want people to know what God is like? You want the world to believe Jesus is the Son of God? You want people to know that the Father sent the Son and the Son is legitimately the Son of God? You want people to know God's love the way and the only way you accomplish that is to be among, i.e. dancing with and pointing to the oneness of the people of God. 
to be about the maintenance of oneness, to be inter-involved, interconnected, interpenetrating in an otherworldly way, to be defined as individuals relative each other. You want others to see the love of God and the character of God? That's how you do it. That's the amazing outcome of oneness of the people of God. It's via oneness those things happen, and they don't happen apart from oneness. The renegade evangelist doesn't put the love of God on display. The renegade evangelist doesn't even share the good news. The renegade evangelist, really, the effect of the renegade evangelist is to make much of themselves. The maverick ministry doesn't put God on display or the love of God on display. The renegade and maverick, in fact, probably just makes much of the maverick. It's in oneness that we put his nature on display. See it, believe it, and know it. It's in ordinary, daily, bad breath having, bumping into, misspeaking, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. People being people, oneness. Hurting somebody's feelings, oneness. Being rude, thoughtless, oneness. That's putting the gospel on display. It's an interconnectedness, interinvolvement, interpenetration, submission, and faithfulness in our different roles, deep and real dependence on each other. That shows the world what God looks like, and that shows the world how God loves us as He's loved His own Son. So next week, we're going to consider how this is lived out. First week, we considered what even is oneness. And this week, we've considered how important is it and what's the effect of it. So I hope that you've been sort of um, uh, prepared and eager to hear how we do this. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4 this next week. So if you want to read ahead, we're going to kind of take a satellite Sunday and camp out in Ephesians chapter 4, one of the other most prominent passages in our Bible that deal with the oneness of the people of God. And you're going to see how oneness is maintained, not achieved, because it's already been achieved, but how it's maintained. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you will guard uh, the hearts of this people from mishandling thoughts on sugar. I, I'm personally burdened about that. I know how easy it is to take something out of context or to misunderstand something. Lord, I pray that you will guard our people from um, jumping on what might have been an example of a lie that Satan uses. Lord, I pray that the big picture for this people and the outcome of this sermon as we've considered the importance of oneness and the effect of oneness will be that we have a deep and urgent burden to know and be known, to abide in you, to walk with your people in a real, tangible way, not just a notion, but in perfect oneness. Lord, I pray that an outcome of this message will be that we are burdened to consider 
what sort of gospel we're presenting at home, what sort of God our children are seeing in how mom and dad get along and how dad treats mom and how mom follows dad. Lord, I pray that we can examine ourselves and consider even how we walk in the local church, whether we keep folks at arm's distance, whether we're too busy for each other, whether we're fearful about knowing or being known. Lord, I pray that this passage will just shed light on all of that as we consider the ways and the wiles of Satan. Lord, we recognize that he has a powerful influence over us, but we also declare our freedom from him. And we enjoy that we've already been liberated from his ways and wiles. Lord, I pray an outcome of this message will be a burden, an urgent burden for the renewal of our mind out of desperation, not out of legalism, check and roll on each other, but out of desperation to hear what you say week after week and to walk in what we've heard and be stirred up by way of reminder with each other. Lord, I pray an outcome of this message will be that we see Satan as offensive, as on the offensive as hungry, as prowling, as busy, as using the things, the daily things, each and of themselves that seem so innocent, to mess with us and to mess with oneness. I pray that we can be tuned into his ways and his wiles. I pray that we've turned the light on this morning in considering how he operates. Lord, I pray that we've considered the role of the word in diagnostically testing every spirit. Lord, I'm burdened for Greenville. I'm burdened for neighbors that live across the street that I know aren't walking with you or with the people. Neighbors that live right next door to us that I know aren't walking with you or with your people. Lord, I'm praying the long arm of evangelism in this community is a oneness that is otherworldly. Lord, I pray it just puts the gospel on display that others will hear about you among your people and just know that you sent your son and that he's legit. Lord, we love you. We pray for this, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's continue in song. Just a thought before we go to the supper, just over the past couple of weeks has been, has been preaching from John 17 and uh, we've been dining on these requests and when he says it's a plea, the first time I heard him say that I was, it just struck me, a plea, understanding that this is a plea from the mouth of God the Son to the ear of God the Father. I'm thinking, man, if that's a plea, uh, it's a sure plea that that oneness will be accomplished, uh, that it is accomplished. You know, there's some of the already and not yet in that is accomplished for us, and we're learning as a church to walk in that. And I think it's appropriate this morning before we go to the supper. Uh, if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If I can get my eyes to work up here in this light. I want to read from verse 17. And as I read and you follow, uh, 
listen in the light of oneness. We need to be sober as we approach the supper. But of the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drink. What? Do you not have house to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in, in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning, as we as a body enjoy this supper, the Lord's Supper, Father, that you would examine us. Help us to examine ourselves. Father, that we approach this with your son in view, the finished work, the oneness you desire for this body of believers to put on display. That the world would know us by our love for one another. That your glory would be on display. We pray these things in Jesus' name. I have uh, Sundays every now and again where I just kind of feel like my mouth doesn't cooperate with where my head is and what I'm thinking, and this is one of those Sundays, so I, I'm, you know, I hadn't listened to the sermon. Sometimes I listen to the sermon again, um, but I guess what I would just offer to you is just an urgency for you to be part of a small group to talk through the message, because that, thankfully, if this all there was, then I would really be concerned, but there's small group where small group leaders are able to kind of iron out the wrinkles and it's able to find a home and purchase in your lives. So I encourage you, if you're not part of a small group, to um, be part of a small group in a meaningful way. It's that place where we're stirred up by way of reminder. Um, it's something that I need. And Christy and I and our kids, we need that. And I, 
I, I can't expect that you're any different. Um, you may not think that you need it, but you do. And uh, the fact that Satan is prowling around and, and is on the offensive and is busy and that he used things that are just so common and daily to divide us, we've really got to have our minds renewed. I mean, really, really have to be attentive. We have to be what Peter said, being sober and watchful. And sobriety and watchfulness don't come from just hanging out. That those are sort of offensive in nature. Being watchful means that you are, your eyes are open and you're considering what he might use to divide. I think part of the reason I was just sort of, I don't know, having a tough time this morning is I'm fearful about sharing personal things, not because I don't care about anybody knowing about my personal struggles, but because I don't want that to become the message. It's so easy. I know how easy it is. Oh, we've got, Ben said we've got to stop eating sugar. <laughs> you know, I'm scared about sharing that kind of stuff, but I, I'm just talking personally. Anecdotally, that's something that has been divisive for me for years. It's divided me between my brothers. I was the overweight kid in our family, and my brothers sort of made fun of me, so my health was in some ways divisive. And I was always um, defensive against them, even when they weren't trying to be mean. I took everything as they're being critical. It's weird when I really examine it. Over the course of our marriage, it's been divisive for Christian, how I eat and how, um, how, I'm, um, how active I am or aren't. I mean, that's weird. That's weird, but if Satan is, is the ruler of this world, why wouldn't he use the physical things to divide? So this isn't a fitness message. It's examine yourself, examine your family and say, what is potentially damaging oneness? And let's open our eyes to that. Let's pray that God would invade that and uh, move that so that we can walk and maintain in oneness or maintain oneness that's already been earned. There's the emphasis not on earning it because that was done on Golgotha, but maintaining it that requires sobriety, watchfulness, vigilance. That's hopefully what this message was about. And hopefully in small groups, that'll be the discussion is how do we, how do we walk in what we've heard? Um, that's why I urge you to be part of that. And, and I... Maybe why I'm fearful about sharing personal stuff. It's not an anti-sugar message. And it's not go start running message. And I'm sharing my personal, the things that, my Egypt. That's a better, better way to put it. That's my Egypt. I bet you've got one. Or multiple Egypts. And they're there so that you may know that he is the Lord. So in some weird way, you can be thankful for that trial. Like the psalmist in 119, I'm thankful for my afflictions because they taught me your statutes. I came to know you through that. So connect that problem with that big God and see this role that Satan has with messing with oneness and say, man, I want to walk in what was earned on Golgotha. Whatever it takes, I want to walk in that. Prayerfully, Lord, I want to walk in that. By grace, show me how to walk in that. How, me, how I can guard that. That was the point of today. So small groups, I have a chance to find a home for that. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. <clears throat> Lord, we are thankful for the time we've had together this morning. I'm thankful for, um, thankful for your word. and thankful that you show us um, who our adversary is, that we're not ignorant to him. We don't have to be... 
um, ignorant to his ways and his wiles, but we can be informed, we can be sober, we can be watchful, we can be attentive. Lord, I pray that as a result of the time that we've had together this morning, that we'll have a better understanding of your character and why we want great marriages, why we want a great church, because it puts you on display. Lord, I pray that that'll be our motive, ultimately your glory. I want Evan, Luke, and Daniel to see what the gospel looks like and how I treat Christy. And Lord, we want Greenville to see what the gospel looks like and how we walk with each other and how we're part of each other and how we're dependent on each other. Lord, show us how to be otherworldly in that respect. Work that in us for your namesake and for your glory. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.